The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Margaret Scholes. She is the executive director of the International Organic Inspectors Association, maintaining the IOIA office in Montana since January of 1999. IOIA is a global nonprofit membership association of organic inspectors with primary activities of inspector training and promoting integrity in the organic certification process. She has 30 years of organic inspection experience under her belt for different certifiers, including inspection of farms, livestock, and processors. She served on the steering committee of IFOAM North America, a regional affiliate of IFOAM Organics International, and she'll explain what that means to us here in a moment. She holds a BS in agriculture with an agronomy major from the University of Arizona. She lives now in southeastern Montana with her husband, where she maintains and manages a cow-calf operation. Welcome, Margaret. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. As a registered dietitian, after serving on a couple of organic farming boards, I have become an advocate for organic and agroecological farming practices. But what I've discovered along the way is that there's a lot of confusion about what organic really means. I hear people questioning the value of the label. You know, is it worth spending a little bit more for the organic product in the market? And one of the things that I tell consumers is that it's a label that has a third-party certification, which really gives it added value in my book. And I thought it would be interesting to have you on to talk about the inspection process and your years of experience doing organic work. So why don't you first tell us how you got into working with organic farming systems? Well, if I go way back, my interest in organic goes back to when I was a teenager, and I had an aunt who was an avid Rodale reader, and I read all the organic gardening magazines I could get my hands on, and I was the family gardener. But when I went away to college, I wasn't really thinking about organic specifically. Nobody really was then, or very few people were back in the 70s. That's when certification really started, but a lot of people were not thinking about certification When I went to college, I was interested in plant breeding as a solution to a lot of world problems and looking at breeding for more disease resistance and drought hardiness, salt hardiness, and those kind of things. So when we moved back to Montana, of course, I always had an organic garden, but when we moved back to Montana in 1981, my husband happened to be reading an ad in the newspaper, and he said, hey, this sounds like you. It said, wanted part-time organic inspector must have owned transportation. Send resume and letter of interest. And so I sent a letter and my resume, and I got a phone call, and it said it sounds like I was selling vegetables at the farmer's market on a very small scale. But I went to my first organic inspector training in 1988, but it was a very informal event, not like the trainings that we have now. 
and was just a very small event in the back of a health food store. And at the end, we were asked how many of you are interested in this work, and four of us raised our hands. And that first year, I did four inspections. And I just loved the work. It was like, it felt like a glove. And I've never really looked back since then. I could have taken a slight turn to the left in college and I could be doing genetic engineering. But I took the slight turn to the right, I would hope anyway. And I've been doing inspections ever since and mentoring other inspectors, training other inspectors. And it ended up being my lifetime. It's interesting how many people I talked to who were influenced by Rodale their dads or their grandparents received the Rodale Organic Gardening magazine, and it influenced them much like Francis Moore LePay's Diet for a Small Planet influenced many people in the diet world. So I think it's so interesting when people have this broad impact of influence and where it brings us today. So thank you for referring to that. That's very interesting. Well, I don't think that there's really good understanding about the value of organic. And I I think a lot of that has to do with what people hear in the media, what we read in the paper. There might be influential articles, say, in the Washington Post or the New York Times. And I think as we're short for time, we read headlines more than we really delve into the stories and do our own research. If you were to describe to a consumer, what does organic mean and Why is there value in that label? What would you say? Well, there are quite a few different ways to look at it. One is that it's identity-preserved food, and that's something that most people are looking for now. It has to be tracked back to the field, the farm where it was produced. Certainly lower in pesticide residue, which is important to most people. The organic regulations require that the maximum level of pesticides that can exist on organic produce and still be sold as organic is only 5% of what the EPA allows on regular produce. So certainly lower in chemical contamination. It's inspected every year. It has to be an annual inspection by a certification agency according to the USDA regulations. Those are like immediate values. You're getting healthier food, and you know where it came from, and someone's checking on it for you, which is not true of all the food that you buy. But beyond that, There are so many requirements that consumers don't always think about. For example, the soil building requirement, the requirement to foster biodiversity and conserve natural resources, the things that are not as immediate but are good for the environment. And sometimes people are confused about the non-GMO label because we do buy a lot of non-GMO product and organic product. And some people, I know my daughter-in-law asked me, can I buy black beans and know that they're okay if they're not labeled non-GMO. And I said, of course, there aren't any GMO black beans yet anyway. So if you're buying organic, there are several things that are not allowed, including ionizing irradiation, sewage sludge, or genetic engineering. So those are three things that are prohibited in all organic production and all organic inputs in processed organic food. So if you're trying to avoid GMOs and you're concerned about that, A lot of people say, well, how do you know GMOs are bad for you? And what I always say is we don't. But I think what our government did is a crime because they have allowed GMO varieties to enter our food stream without appropriate testing, without exercising any precautions. 
just saying if it's a genetically engineered tomato with a gene from another species, it's still a tomato, so you don't have to test it. And so you could say, I do say, I don't know that GMOs are bad for me, but I do know that dowsing so many of our crops with Roundup is bad for everybody. And so the most common genetically modified crops are those that don't die if the crop is sprayed with Roundup. And there's a lot of data that shows that dousing our food with Roundup is bad for us. I think you bring up some really good points because, you know, I work on the consumer education side as well as the human health side. And so what you're saying is reinforcing what I had always believed as well. We see labels being slapped on foods with the non-GMO label for foods that were never genetically engineered. And I liken that to the way we used to see foods labeled as no cholesterol on foods that never did contain cholesterol. (laughs) So it is a very difficult to navigate marketplace for the consumers. So I think you bring up a very good point, and that is if you're looking to avoid genetically modified foods, then the way to do that is to look for the organic label because GMOs are not allowed in the organic production system. And I think you also make another very good point about what can we expect. We are told that, oh, my goodness, we need this high technology and genetic engineering to feed the world when really the majority of genetically engineered crops are engineered to withstand not only Roundup now but an ever-increasing number of herbicides And that can't be good for our health or our water quality and our air quality and soil microbes, etc. So thank you for bringing that forth. The other label that I think is very much confused with organic is the natural label. What do you tell consumers about that? The definition for natural is really simple. It just can't have any artificial additives or it has to be minimally processed It's a very simple definition, and for example, most of the meat in the meat counter would be natural by legal definition. Now, there are natural labels that are meaningful, but it's confusing to the consumers. I would like to add one thing about labels that people don't know always. I've heard people say, it didn't have the USDA organic seal on it, so I wouldn't buy it. And I always am a little distressed by that because it's a great marketing symbol. It's highly recognized by consumers. I love to see it. But... That little USDA organic bug is never required on any label. Really? What is required is if something's 100% organic, it has to be 100% organic. If it says organic, there's a very strict definition of what organic means. If it says it's made with organic, like you might see mac and cheese made with organic pasta or made with organic cheese, Mm -hmm. the made with organic labels cannot put the USDA organic logo on them, Mm -hmm. but the organic and the 100% organic can, but it is always optional. So if it says organic, it's still better than made with organic, and it's still better than natural or a non-organic product. It's just that that's a common misconception. It is, and that's why I brought it up, and I'm sorry if I put you on the spot with regard to natural. What I tell consumers is it begins with the letter N, just as the word nothing begins with the letter N. So when you see that natural label, just remember that really it doesn't mean much. It means about nothing. And it certainly is not in the same league as organic. So I'm glad that we clarified that. We also probably should talk about the inspection since you are an organic inspector. Let's say I'm a farmer and I decide, you know, I think I want to 
switch over from conventional to organic, what do I do? There are a lot of good resources through the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service of the U.S. government, Mm -hmm. that help to provide transitional education, and there's even financial incentives, grants for transitioning over. But one of the things I encourage farmers to do who are thinking about it is to go on as many organic farm tours and Mm -hmm. go to organic conferences because there's a lot of free education on those types of events. And there's a lot of information online anymore, especially with ATRA. ATRA is a great resource. NCAT, the National Center for Appropriate Technology, it's all free public resource material. But one of the things that farmers do, an easy way to transition is not always the best way to transition, but an easy way to transition is to take out an old alfalfa field. And that happens a lot. People will take out old hay fields and they haven't used any materials for three years and that's the they have to not use any prohibitive materials for 36 months. So they take out an old alfalfa field. You have good fertility. You have good organic matter. You have good weed control, usually. And so it's kind of easy to go into organic. But the problem is then, if you don't have a really good rotation, you haven't really learned how to control the weeds or maintain fertility in an annual cropping system. So that's one way that I see people transition. Mm-hmm. Let me take one minute and remind our guests, if you're just tuning in, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Margaret Scholes. She is the executive director of the International Organic Inspectors Association, and she is based in the state of Montana. So I've decided that I'm going to be an organic farmer. I want to, say, grow some vegetables, and I want to sell at my local market. I need to go through the certification process and... That means that I have to find a certifier. Is that correct? Yes. You choose the certifier. You don't choose the inspector. For those that got confused by the Washington Post article that said it the other way around, a certifier is a certification agency that is accredited by the USDA. So the government oversees the certifier. The certifier employs either staff or contract inspectors, and they decide what inspector goes out. So you can't choose your own inspector. But... What you would do is to get familiar with the regulations, which are available online at the National Organic Program website. And after reading through the regulations, then you'd contact the certifier. There are certifiers not necessarily located in every state, but there is certification in every state. So there are certifiers that certify in many states. There's also state programs that only certify within the state or in a close area. So once you've contacted the certifier, then you would request their application materials, and that would include an organic system plan form. So you have to complete an organic system plan that explains how you plan to meet the regulations. Someone at the certifier does an initial review to say, yep, this operation looks like it can be certified, and then they send an inspector who goes on site and observes and asks questions and looks at records and submits a report back to the certification agency, and a different party has to make the decision on whether the operation is certified. I actually like that part of being an inspector, is I don't make any decisions, I don't issue noncompliances. I just go look and have a conversation with the farmer and then report my findings to a certifier who decides if they're certified. Does the farmer then make an appointment to have you come out on a certain day and time And what is the relationship on the farm? Like, let's say you see something that you suspect might be a violation. 
Would you mention that to them and help guide them to a more correct process? We have to be careful because we are required by the regulation. We can't ignore anything that we see that could be a violation. We have to discuss it with them, and we cannot leave the operation without ending with an exit interview in which we would discuss any potential noncompliances. Mm-hmm. What I would do is say, what can you tell me about this? <laughs> and usually they will tell you about it, but we just ask questions and get information. But we do have to discuss it with them. Well, I'm just trying to understand the relationship between the farmer and the inspector, the farmer and the certifier, and how the farmer navigates the relationship with the inspector. I can see a farmer, for example, being really nervous. You know, they really want this certification. They know that there's a market of consumers that is very much interested in organic food and farming. Consumer interest is really driving this market, I think, Mm -hmm. with good reason. Does the farmer then have some apprehension before the inspector comes? Because ultimately what happens is if the inspector finds violations, and you tell me how many violations would be unacceptable, for example. I'm thinking of restaurant inspections. I'm trying to put Mm -hmm. my head in that part. How does it work? You make an appointment to visit the farm, and then what happens? Yes, the inspector contacts the inspected party, and unless it's an unannounced inspection, which does happen, unannounced inspections happen, a certain percentage of operations will have an unannounced inspection, a certain percentage will have residue samples taken. Most first-time operators are nervous, and so part of the inspector's job is actually to put them at ease, explain the process, And if we don't establish rapport, it's really hard to get information from someone who's trying to withhold it from you. Most of the violations actually come out in open conversation. It's not like a ferret ferreting things out. More of it comes out in conversation. And a lot of the issues are honest mistakes or errors, not intentional fraud. Of course, intentional fraud can exist, but in more cases, it's someone who's accidentally used a material that contained a prohibitive product. It isn't so much how many noncompliances that you have, because you could theoretically get 10 noncompliances and still get certified, but it depends what they are. If you used a prohibited material, there's no forgiveness for that, and it's another three years until that field can be certified. Mm. Well, that's good to know. Now, tell me about what your experiences have been in working with farmers. You've been doing this for 30 years. You must have learned so much from the organic farmers that you visited? I did. I think I learned most of what I know from the organic farmers that I visited. And I'm always learning, and there's always someone that's doing something different. There's almost nothing new. You think you see somebody do something new. I remember uh, when I was excited, I was in Canada, and I learned that a really good weed control in buckwheat was planting half of the buckwheat one way at half the seed rate and then planting cross-planting the other half. And then, of course, it made a wonderful canopy and the weeds didn't grow and it was great weed control. I thought, what a great idea. Everybody should be doing this. What a great idea. And so I was doing a talk to some farmers, and this was about 20 years ago, and I said, you see the most interesting techniques that people use to deal with weeds. And I described this, and there was an old guy in the back of the room that raised his hand, and he said, my grandpa did that, and I swear there's nothing you find that somebody's grandpa didn't try it. But it's fun to learn always from the farmers because something that works for one farmer 
isn't going to work for another farmer because farmers are different. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's an interaction between a farmer and their farm, and people are different, and they'll have different types of operations to reflect that. Sure. And the regions I, are different. You asked me a question about can we guide the people to compliance? Yes. And I started to answer that, and I should answer that, because we are required to give technical assistance, in other words, to inform them of what the regulation says and to be helpful within the confines of public resources, but we're actually not allowed to do what we call consulting, which is giving them specific solutions to overcome their potential noncompliance. It's kind of a tightrope to walk. Yeah, yeah. How would they find out how to correct their problems then? Nine times out of ten, if you say, well, this is the problem that I see, they'll say, well, what if I did such and such? And you can say, that would solve the problem. And is it okay if I put this down in my exit interview that this is what you've proposed to do? And they say, yes, that's what I'm going to do. So they solve their own problems. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I can't give them a specific solution, though, because that's helping them overcome a barrier to certification, which we're not allowed to do. So uh-huh. that's part of the role of the inspector that's kind of a tightrope to be yeah. helpful and establish rapport, but not be overhelpful and teach them how to get compliant if they're not. Right. So where does the certifier come in? Does the certifier really just work through the inspector? Does the certifier ever interact with the farmer? Certifiers interact a lot with farmers, but almost never on site. So usually it's the inspector that's on site. We say we're the eyes, ears, and nose of the certifier. But they do a lot of work usually on the telephone because they're the people that will provide the guidance on how to fill out the system plan and what they need to do to get ready. Sometimes they have a checklist that they say have the following things ready for the inspector. And the whole process is actually very helpful, I think, to the farmer because when the system plan is first reviewed and the certifier sees things that could be a problem, they'll raise those with the farmer. They may call them up. They may just send them a letter. Then the inspector follows up on those issues. And then after the inspection report is submitted, it has to address all those issues. And then there's still a final report that the final certification decision in which a letter goes back to the operator that says, we need you to change these three things. So there's a lot of steps in the process where certifiers work with the farmers, but they're not usually on site at the farm. I see. Okay, so you've visited a lot of farms. You've met with a lot of farmers. It sounds like, from my perspective, that... There are a lot of extra steps that a farmer has to go through to be certified. Why would you tell a farmer to go through those steps? And what do farmers tell you in terms of why they've chosen to take those extra steps? Well, first of all, if they want to sell their product as organic, whether it's at the farmer's market or anywhere else, if they're selling more than $5,000 worth, the law actually requires that they be certified. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a simple one. They may have to if they want to sell their product as organic. They also have to be certified if they want to sell to a processor who's using their, for example, a small grower is growing $1,000 worth of cilantro and a certified salsa producer who's selling $30,000 worth of salsa wants to use that cilantro. Mm -hmm. The cilantro would have to be certified before it could go into the certified salsa. So there's some legal reasons. But beyond that, I think... I've heard a lot of producers say that certification helped them get a record-keeping system. Mm-hmm. That no one loves paperwork, but it actually helped their operations that they had to set up a good record-keeping system. Yeah. 
Do farmers tell you that they've seen changes on their farms since they've switched over to organic? Yes, almost always they will be excited about often the soil quality, but also the fact that their yields are better than they thought they would be when they switched over. Hmm. A lot of people are thinking about, you know, if I take out the fertilizer, I take out the pesticides, my yield will go down a whole bunch. And yields are not that much different on organic. Some crops have higher yields because you can stimulate a lot more production with more fertilizer, but good organic farms have good yields. And hopefully they're increasing organic matter, and that means greater water holding capacity and more drought hardiness. Right. And the biodiversity is something that I hear a lot. When we're not spraying pesticides, I see more birds, ground birds, small animals. Yeah. Unfortunately, the deer often really prefer organic crops. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I was just at a soil conference, and I heard a speaker report that there were a certain kind of pest that preferred the conventional tomato leaf as compared to the organic tomato leaf. And what happened was they did a, an analysis of the leaves in the lab, and they found that the organic leaf had a higher percentage of a compound that was actually beneficial to human health, but was not favorable to the pest. So I love the idea that we're able to attract birds and species that we want on our farm through the organic methods and that we can actually repel some of the nastier pests away. I want to ask you, we just have a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know about organic farming systems? I think that consumers should think beyond the low pesticide. I think in this country we often think of the greatest value of organic is that it has less pesticides, so it's cleaner and I'm going to not get cancer and live longer. And that's all great. But I would hope that consumers would understand the far-reaching impacts on the environment if they purchase organic products. For example, organic milk. It takes a lot of organic crops, a lot of organic forage, a lot of organic pasture, to produce organic milk. And so some people are not meat eaters, maybe don't use dairy products, but those people that are eating meat products and using dairy products have a huge impact on the environment in a positive way if they choose organic products. It's not just about there's not pesticides. And the animals have so much better living conditions on an organic operation. They're less crowded. They have to have access to the outdoors, sunlight, There's lots of things that are not required of pigs or chickens or dairy cows in a conventional operation that are required in an organic operation. Yeah, and I often also think about the farm workers and how they're protected from a lot of the conditions that might be on a conventional farm as well. Yes. I once inspected a very large organic farm years and years ago, and the farmer was certifying the home quarter section, the home 160 acres, because he didn't want his children to be surrounded by chemicals. So he was applying lots of chemicals, but he didn't want his family to be close to them. And that is one thing that I really see that concerns me is the pesticide exposure to the farmers and the farm workers, but the farmers who own the land are also cancer rates, I think, are related. Mm -hmm. I do too. Well, we can all work for a a better planet and a healthier population by choosing organic, and you've helped me solidify my convictions and my commitment to purchasing and recommending organic and agroecological farming methods. 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And mostly, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Margaret Scholes. She is the Executive Director of the International Organic Inspectors Association. She's based in Montana, and I will provide a link to the International Organic Inspectors Association website so everyone can learn more about what inspectors do and more about this organization. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you very much for having me.